This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. In this episode, we welcome Asian American Studies professor Fiona Goh and talk about the discourse of self-sufficiency and its Southeast Asian connection to the history of immigration, disability, race, and welfare in the U.S. Well, welcome to another edition of Southeast Asia Crossroads. Uh, I'm your host, uh, Eric Jones, and with me in the studio is uh, Dr. Fiona Goh. Thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me today. Yeah, you made the long, arduous journey uh, from the University of Illinois, and uh, where um, <laughs> you are, right, an associate professor of Asian American Studies, Gender and Women's Studies, and Latino-Latina Studies uh, there. Um now you just gave a you just gave a really great talk to us today uh, about um, some of the politics of of some of the refugee politics and especially kind of historically thinking about how um, the 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 state tries to um, categorize and the logic it uses for understanding uh, uh, refugees. So uh, maybe maybe start us off um, with the notion of that you that you that you led with about uh, disability logic. Um, what 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 is it, and how does the uh, how does it factor into how um, this, the the in, terms of, in your case the U.S. government is thinking about these these immigrant populations? Well, uh, in part, my work is uh, tracing. Uh, the way that disability is written into immigration law and how that affects uh, different kinds of asylum law, but also refugee status and refugee programs um, in the United States. And there's a long history of uh, people with disabilities being um, excluded uh, from entrance into the United States uh, and also uh, histories of people with disabilities being excluded from public space in the U.S. as well. Um, Sue Schweik uh, has written a great book called uh, The Ugly Laws, um, in, even in the 1880s in Chicago. Now, now for, for our listeners, are we, are we talking uh, disability in, in the way we think about like the Americans with Disabilities Act disabilities? Or wh- what are we, how are we using that phrase? In some ways, it's uh, broader even than that, uh, because disability... Um, at different times was uh, coded as defect as well. So it could be about um, alcoholism or criminality. Uh, People who uh, weren't considered white might also be considered through the sort of lens of disability as well. Uh, But my paper traces the sort of change from uh, that language of uh, disability into the um, later 20th century where the language changes to self-sufficiency um, and self-sufficiency becomes a, a marker for uh, entrance into the U.S. and uh, sort of an idea around fitness for citizenship uh, in, in a different way. In some ways, uh, it retains that sort of broadness of category, though, as well, so that um, self-sufficiency can refer to people with disabilities, but also people who are thought to not be able to assimilate into U.S. society as well. 
um, for a sense of for a sense of time, what are what are we talking about here in terms of how does that how does that transition and when does it take place from disability to self sufficiency? Uh, a lot of the language around disability happens in the uh, late nineteenth and early twentieth century. That those uh, laws are. Uh, written uh, with that language, and it begins to change um, with the Immigration Naturalization Act uh, in 1952 um, and sort of onward. Uh, my work in particular also examines uh, uh, congressional legis- uh, well, congressional hearings um, and congressional discourse about laws because uh, immigration law, of course, is... Uh, in some ways separate from uh, the laws that guide refugees and asylum seekers. Um, so that the, that language of uh, self-sufficiency isn't uh, something that should affect refugee status, say. Um, and then you're, uh, what that means for whether you can um, enter the U.S. Uh, in, some, in some way. Often uh, you get sort of temporary protected status um, when you come into the U.S. as a refugee. Uh, what are some of the What are some of the populations, um, in particular, that you that you that you focus on in in your work when you're looking at this this change over time? Well, uh, my work that I presented today um, and will be uh, the focus of my book uh, is really about comparing the the sort of refugee experiences of people from the Caribbean, Central America, and Southeast Asia, uh, and thinking about how racial formation in the United States in the the 70s, 80s, and into the 90s uh, affects the ways that refugees are received in the United States, or whether or not they can even get refugee status or um, sort of pass through the, the strictures of asylum. Uh, through uh, having their asylum cases be uh, uh, accepted um, in the the U.S. um, and what difference race and uh, country of national origin uh, has to do with uh, the way that people are are allowed in or not. What are are some of the um, assumptions that, or, or or the categories or labels that are put on uh, various groups and and is and is it and is it as a, a blunt of an instrument as like people from country X are um, is there variation with those or I guess maybe start with what are what are the broad um, generalizations that are made about some of those populations you talked about well in 1980 the refugee uh, act tried to re recodify all of the the refugee legislation um, up into that point. Um, and the, the timing of it isn't, uh, isn't a mistake in that uh, three weeks after it was passed, uh, this is when the Muriel boat lift happens to okay. um, uh, take people out of uh, Cuba. Um, but it's also to address the growing Southeast Asian population uh, that's been coming to the U.S. and to sort of recodify how... Um, refugees from these different parts of the world are, are going to um, be treated uh, upon entrance into the into the U.S. But even with the one law that's written, um, there are people named from different regions of the world um, in the law um, and slight variations for how um, what 
programs and, and such people are going to go through um, as part of refugee resettlement. Um, so you get uh, variations in the way that Cubans are treated versus Southeast Asians, and then um, Central Americans are... Um, they have a, a whole different burden to, to prove um, that they are refugees um, available to, to come to the U.S. at, at all, right, because uh, of the sort of complicated relationship that the United States has with Central America and Central American wars um, before it's, of course, discovered that we, we have such a strong hand um, in, in so many of those wars. Yeah, before our intervention is fully known and understood. Yeah, uh, right. that these were, you know, supposedly secret missions. Um, although as a researcher, I've gone down this uh, rabbit hole recently, too, of um, the, the CIA has a, a reading room online. Um, where they've made uh, searchable and available all their FOIA documents. Um, so you can see some of the s surveillance work and such that the CIA is doing um, in, those, those, uh, in the early 80s before um, the Iran-Contra affair breaks and all of that too. So you can um, s s get a sense of how they're uh, interacting in, in uh, El Salvador and... And such, you know, before um, that becomes public information, I suppose. Well, and and and, and amazingly, this is jumping ahead to current events, but but uh, e even so, so we think like, well, it's because there's a certain discourse of th those refugees should stay there because that's not our problem, that's not our war, like, and then discovered like, well, it, it sort of is uh, <laughs> to to a to a pretty important extent. Um, but even when that's known, if you flash forward to today, well, well, those. Those those populations coming coming north from Central America, um, you know, the, the, the with with a simple kind of cursory um, exploration of their own histories to, to the extent that the, those those many of those destabilizing events are are we are we are we're a active participant in and and that doesn't seem to soften hearts or no indeed right the. The way that uh, people from Southeast Asia were treated, even in the 80s, um, uh, when the U.S. war in Vietnam is still pretty fresh, is quite different to how uh, people um, applying as uh, asylum or uh, other kinds of entrance into the U.S. from Central America are treated, because the, yeah. the sort of criminality and illegality of, of uh, their coming to the U.S. is assumed in advance. From Central America, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's really, it's really interesting. So, is there a, is there a, a kind of a, a, a debt of honor that is thought to owed to the Southeast Asian populations that are a result of sort of the Indochina Wars? Is that, is that, is that something that that is that is real in in I guess in U.S. policy or at least in U.S. perception? Uh, it was certainly true at the at the time of the passage of the Refugee Act um, that this was part of the language that was used is that we needed to take responsibility um, for uprooting uh, these populations that were our allies yeah. um, in the war. And that's true, too, in the early 90s when the um, Hmong Refugee uh, Act is passed as well. That's right, that the, this idea that there was this secret war. 
our, our most loyal, um, you know, uh, minority population had been, you know, supporting. Yeah. yeah, it's like we didn't, you know, people don't even know about them, but, uh, you know, we need to support this this population and, um, you know, uh, and that sort of rhetoric helps to get these bills passed. But at this at this on the same token, right, less than three months later, after the Refugee Act of 1980 is passed, right, uh, Senate is immediately asking whether or not those those refugees are self-sufficient yet. Right. So there's um, so a short lived. You've, you've already been here for, you know, a month and a half. That you know, goodwill. Are, are you self-sufficient <laughs> now? Um, right. Because of this, uh, you know, this sort of distrust of people using the welfare system. And right. Using so, the social safety net. So it, it, co- it coincides that, that, that the wave of, of, of refugees um, from Southeast Asia coincide with uh, and, and also from Central America with with a with a change in um, discursive change and and also a policy change um, in in the late seventies and certainly in sort of sort of Reagan era politics. So I guess maybe sure. our listeners may know, but maybe remind us uh, of kind of how um, dependency and uh, kind of a kind of welfare um, stigmatization happens. Yeah, because uh, I mean. If, you, if you'd remember, right, like the Johnson era, there's this kind of war on poverty, um, right, um, that's right. happening. Well, well, quote, unquote, welfare is a way out of these social problems rather than... Well, a- and we sort of build up some of the um, social safety net that um, happened during the New Deal. You know, so you get these, these re-ups on um, health care and um, daycare and things like that during the Johnson era. Um, but... Right. Then you have this moment where, OK, well, this isn't just about poverty. Right. It becomes about the sort of idea of dependency. Mm-hmm. Right. Where, um, you know, this is also when that sort of language around entitlements uh, begins. Right. That is really common now. Um, but the, the sort of idea that um, rather than this just being a tool um, to fight poverty and to um, sort of give people uh, a way out of poverty, right, that this is actually creating um, a problem of dependency, a dependency on the state and a dependency on social services, right? Um, So in the mid-'70s, Reagan uh, coins the term welfare queen, um, which very strongly ties um, black womanhood to um, welfare dependency um, rather than simply uh, populations of, po- of poverty, right? Um, and this has a sort of chilling effect for decades afterwards, um, and we can see that rhetoric in the discourse we have now about social services and the need to uh, defund all kinds of social services um, because, you know, selling it as a way of, of thinking about how really people of color are um, taking money away from white people. Um, hardworking, it, whatever. Yeah, know. right, hardworking taxpayers, um, as though, of course, uh, people of color aren't taxpayers or... Uh, or that, the, or that or, white or, people aren't, or, or aren't, aren't, aren't taking social services. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, yeah, exactly. Or that, you know, 
government welfare only happens through these social services rather than through our tax code um, or, or other um, sort of sites of, of governance, right? So um, it's only very specific populations that are targeted as being uh, sort of aberrational users of uh, social services. Um, rather than people who are paying into the, the system. So. This is a total unfair question, but travel travel back in time, counterfactual. Like, do yes. you think had if the if this mm-hmm. if this refugee population is coming in the in the uh, Great Society kind of uh, these kinds of impulses in the '60s, mid '60s to to um, war on poverty, would it would have made a big difference? I'm not sure because. You know, different refugee groups are already treated so differently, okay. uh, even in the same time period, right? So even in the few months or of the beginning of 1980, um, it, it's so dependent on so many different kinds of national rhetoric. So the rhetoric around anti-communism um, in some ways shields... Um, both Southeast Asians and Cubans in a, in a, in a it's be, it's because it's because that's such an overarching important with that 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 trumps any kind of sense of like well questions you might have about their fitness or their or their like we, we if it's if it's going to stop communism it's we can we need to we need to rubber stamp it is, well, yeah, is that what you're saying and, and, well it's also uh, a sort of sense that it's proof that the United States and these systems of democracy are superior oh, right, oh, to, okay. to communist countries. Sort of like the early Berlin Wall, everyone fleeing over it, like, okay, this is like, yeah. yeah it becomes, People are voting with their feet. It's kind of used as evidence of, of uh, you know, U.S. national su- superiority um, in so many ways, right? Because right. defectors and um, refugees want to come to the United States um, from these fleeing, you know, the oppressive regimes of communist governments, right? So that becomes the the story rather than even uh, because the U.S. um, bombed our country flat, um, we have to move, right? That's that's not the story that's um, told to... not as marketable <laughs> for the, yeah. in the pamphlets. It's, it's not as popular for passing <laughs> legislation, it turns out. Um, but, uh, you know, so it's managing that national story as well so that refugees become evidence, right, of our largesse and our, our liberalness, right, as opposed yeah. to the um, sort of illiberality of uh, communism in communist countries.
Yeah, no, that's that's interesting. Okay, so I'll go back back to the back to the actual past uh, of of <laughs> not so just the, the imagined past. Yeah, right. So the the uh, it's it's the, the the timing is pretty important in terms of these these ways of thinking about um, self sufficiency um, uh, and and the and the arrival of populations from from uh, from around the world, Southeast Asia and Central America. Um, how does that get translated into into refugee policy? So, what what are do we see after the um, Refugee Act of nineteen eighty? Are there are there is there is it is it just a, a discussion around that that changes, or are there are there actual policies that are put in place that 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 institutionalize the the self sufficiency narrative onto onto the the refugee arrivals, or or is it? Um, uh, is is that kind of more happening in the in the in the in the public sphere of of judgment? Well, I think in the U.S., it's uh, one of the the interesting things about refugees are that uh, ref- being a refugee is actually a legal status, right? But depending on what country you're from, you're recognized as a refugee or you're recognized as something else. Um, so when Cubans came to the U.S. Um, you know, they didn't identify as refugees. They identified as exiles. Um, and having an exilic uh, population is different than being a refugee population in terms of how people are received um, in the public eye as well. I'm, I'm assuming that's a preferred designation? Uh, well, I think it's it's meant to... Uh, in, in some ways, it's a political designation as well. Right, um, that they're Cubans in exile from this communist government, right? But it also sort of connotes a kind of agency um, that people who are called refugees don't necessarily um, get in that public eye. Where you know the sort of idea of refugee is this sort of traumatized body um, that's moving across borders, it's being pushed across borders. There's um, less of a sense of that kind of agency that accompanies something like exile as, as a label. Exile almost sounds like uh, um, kind of uh, uh, the, the hush tones that sort of reverence for military service is, is thought of, you know, these people are, are they've, they're making choices, they're putting their lives on the line, they're, they're, they're you know, prisoners of conscience, and they're, they're, is, that, is that too far of a stretch? No, I mean, I think it's... it's um, very much in that vein of um, being agentive in your in in terms of displacement instead of being simply displaced by by war. So the, the idea of refugee is that you're being pushed pushed around, um, whereas exiles, I think there's a sort of idea of choice um, that's involved in it. And you know, but people from Central America, if, when they're coming to the U.S. They're often not called refugees, nor nor exiles, but rather illegal um, uh-huh. immigrants or illegal aliens of sorts. Uh, even though it's, of course, not illegal to come to the U.S. and apply for asylum, either. Right. So um, it turns out. Um, <laughs> yeah, go figure. So, um, but the the sort of ways that people are labeled. Um, even as they they might be fleeing war or political prosecution or religious prosecution, um, as they come into the United States, can be quite different. So 
even if the, the legal status is supposed to be similar, the public discourse around people from different countries can vary quite widely, which has an effect on how people interact with social service agencies and um, social servants as well. Is, is, there a, is there a preferred status or a... Um it sounds like an airline club. Is there? Is there a that, that I, I know? I know just from the on the Southeast Asian side. If you look at like say the 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 evacuate the American evacuation um, uh, at the end of the war, you know the people who had uh, you know their, their their efforts to 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 get these people uh, who had who had been most closely collaborating with the United States out. Does that? Does that? Is there? Is that? Is it? delicate and varied enough does it happen once they arrive in the united states that um a continued recognition of like say say um uh, 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 Hmong who had who had fought against uh, the north vietnamese or people who had served in the south vietnamese military um that that they are that they are special status of 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 arrivals of um then then say people who might just you know be fleeing because they're 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 Saigon was crushed or, you know, um, I don't know. Uh, does, I, I, I honestly don't know. Does it happen? Are they treated differently once they arrive with special favors or status? Well, I think there's definitely in, um, sort of commemorative, uh, exercises of different kinds around Veterans Day, et cetera, right? Where, uh, people will still put on their, you know, South Vietnamese army, outfits yeah. and um you know i'm i'm very much aware in my family of who you know served in the military and and those sorts of things as well um and then there's still the sort of idea that former generals might be um considered community leaders too like vang pao or right um, uh so that 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 certainly happens i don't know if um and there's certainly efforts by like uh, U.S. veterans groups and things like that to call attention to the role that the Hmong played, say, um, in those sort of, um, you know, the, the secret war or what have you. Um, I don't know that that sort of commemoration happens sort of continuously at the, the national uh, level in terms of like legislation and that kind of politics, though. Can you tell us what, to what extent are some of these, some of these, um, these notions, uh, that are put on, put on these, these refugee communities, um, uh, about them? Are they, are any of them internalized by, by the Southeast Asian populations? Are they, you know, something that, you know, that, that, you know, a, uh, first generation refugees can, can, be quite hard on next generation of refugees or they can, they can, or, 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 uh, perhaps kind of an overcompensating of, of conservatism or nationalism that to, 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 um, um, to signal one's, uh, um, one's virtue or, or one's, uh, kind of, uh, you're, you're on team USA, uh, or whatever. Does that, does that, is it internalized by, by the Southeast Asian populations? To what extent? I mean, I think to some degree that that has to be true, right? Because um, both Vietnamese and um, Cuban uh, community groups became uh, very, very uh, enthusiastically uh, conservative and Republican 
uh, for so right. long in that first first and sort of 1.5 generation um, and then less so as, as generations uh, sort of continue for, for at least the Vietnamese, I, I'm, which I'm more, a little more familiar with. Um, but in so many ways, that sort of reaction to U.S. politics is really about survival um, and that exactly that feeling of uh, wanting to sort of uh, at least appear to em embrace, you know, the American way of life um, in, in um, these ways to protect, protect communities. And, um, and I think that that's been successful in a, in a lot of ways. Um, and now I think in Southern California and um, Orange County, you definitely have like a, a sort of rise in uh, Vietnamese American politicians and um, people being elected into uh, into uh, different positions from uh, the, s the city level into the, the state uh, level as well. And of course, that's that's been true in uh, Florida, too, in terms of uh, Cuban uh, American right. uh, politicians, too. So you pointed out it's interesting um, similarity between some some of the impulses of some of the Cuban community and the the Vietnamese community. Um, you also noticed some 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 differences uh, that, uh, for example, like tell us a bit about the um, like the Haitian um, immigrant population and how they're how they're perceived, how they're treated, versus versus some of the other arrivals in this period. Yeah, I think almost as soon as. Uh the Muriel boat lift happened um, that brought 125,000 Cubans to the U.S. Um, sort of overnight. Uh, <laughs> the government became almost immediately worried about other populations in the Caribbean following suit. Um, and trying to worried that they would want to do that? or Yeah, that they would mm. um, come to the U.S. <laughs> in larger numbers than the U.S. was sort of. Right. Hey, the borders are open. Just everyone come in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so they wanted to, they had to change that signal. They, well, they thought they should change the signal to what was happening um, to, to Caribbean populations in particular. So they um, changed the status um, of Cubans and Haitians to uh, those Cuban, Cuban and uh, Cuban Haitian entrance and then in parentheses status pending. Um, which is the official design, designation really? for the the Caribbean? What did they what did they what did they what did they want to signal about status pending? What did that what that what's that mean? It means that uh, if you're it's a it's a legal designation, right? So that if you're an entrant, um, what does status pending mean? Is it means are you going to be um, is your asylum case going to be successful or are you going to be the, our minds aren't made up. We're still going to decide on. Yeah. yeah. Are you going to okay. be deported yeah. back to your your um, home country immediately? Right. So there's no automatic kind of designation. It's yeah pending. Yeah, exactly. It's status pending. So yeah, you have to go through this this part of the process, right? So even um, countries that or uh, people who are um, designated as refugees by the UN say might not get automatic refugee status in the U.S. Right. Um, so that their status is still pending. Um, 
what it meant in practice for Haitians was that um, Haitians were often detained um, at the border, um, more or less imprisoned, um, and then deported. Um, they, you know, this may sound like a familiar story suddenly, um, were told that uh, at their INS hearings they couldn't have uh, lawyers present so they would have to represent themselves in their asylum cases. Um, you know, so that there were all these roadblocks for obtaining uh, success through um, asylum law in the U.S. Yeah, well, you, 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 you went exactly where I was about to ask our, our next question there. Th- this is obviously a, a, a major issue, uh, one of the major issues in, 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 this, in the current administration. Um, uh, are there are there are there echoes that you that you see happening? Are there are there kind of lessons that are learned? What's the kind of what's the in, instructive ways of 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 thinking about that experience versus this one? There's similarities, differences. What's your take? Well, I think in part, it, I mean, it makes it difficult to do this as a historical project because I keep wanting to bring it into the present in so many ways because there are so many yeah. echoes now in terms of the way that people imagine immigration having these deleterious effects on our social um, service systems. Um, And that sort of feels like a a connection that I think seems natural to people. And 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 and, And I guess I'm assuming, as probably was the case in the 80s, the actual data showing how little social services are actually being used by them and how the, 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 the financial benefits of, of immigrants, uh, in, in kind of the net, you know, net economy are, I, I'm, I'm guessing that doesn't also doesn't move the needle. No, <laughs> the truth doesn't necessarily, yeah, no, the truth isn't necessarily what people are, are interested in. Right. Um, I mean, and this is, this has been true of course for, for a long time. Um, but you know, there's, been, there's been a new draft uh, leaked of a potential um, White House intervention into immigration law um, to say that people who've used particular kinds of social services might be available for expulsion from the country. Um, the immigration that are using them illegally? Is that what's implied? Or? No. Oh, okay. Wow. No. Not that they're using them illegally, but that they're using them at all. Um so this is one of those ways that these like uh, laws. That self-sufficiency narrative is pretty strong. Yeah, the the, de- the deportation is something that can happen sort of after after the fact in some ways, right? So you've used these social services, and they're the, they're all the social services that um, service the the poorest populations, right? So food stamps. Um, TANF, uh, which is uh, welfare, uh, Medicaid, um, P for um, prescription drugs, um, Section 8 housing. Uh, th- those are the programs that would be targeted, right? Not, not the kinds of welfare that you get if you're a homeowner and you get tax benefits from that or so- something like that, right? Or that you own your own business and you have pass-through income. You know, not not that kind of social services, right? But the social services that target the the poorest populations, which, again, plays on that that language of self sufficiency. Um, 
and that it would it would be something that goes into effect sort of after the after the fact, but that there's already some precedent in that in terms of like the the deportation of Cambodians um, from the U.S. Right. Um, who've committed felonies. So even if they, you know, had uh, uh, served their time uh, for those felonies and, and finished their prison sentences, that they could still be deported um, f- from the U.S., right? Um, and my colleague at UIUC, Sua Kwan, has a fantastic article on that um, that was published in Positions on Cam- Cambodian deportation, so... Yeah, I mean, sadly, it's it's uh, it seems like a, a uh, an issue that's that's likely not likely to go away soon, and uh, I guess all the more important uh, some of this, some of your and and ongoing um, research. Uh, I wanna I wanna um, point our listeners to some of the uh, some of your work, especially your 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 book Imperial Blues: Geographies of Sex. And race in jazz age, uh, New York. Um, let's uh, let's do some let's do some plugs. What uh, what um, uh, what's what's coming up on the horizon? You mentioned a, you mentioned a book. Or are we going to see some some new articles coming out? Or is it when winter? What what should we be looking for? Well, I, I published an article in Camera Obscura a few years ago um, called "Sense and Subjectivity" about. Um, uh, was this, these hysterically blind uh, Cambodian women and how people were uh, reading them when they came to the U.S. in terms of trauma. Um, that's going to be one of the chapters that I'm hoping will be in this new book, which is at least tentatively called The Perfectible Refugee. Um, and one, one doesn't know when these things will come out, but hopefully in the next <laughs> couple of years uh, that'll, that'll be uh, available. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, and um, we'll keep uh, we'll keep your uh, eyes open and uh, um, join us again. Join us again soon, perhaps for some music. Who knows? So, yeah, yeah, stay stay tuned. And uh, uh, again, Fiona, thanks for coming to NIU and joining us here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been a lovely day. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Crossroads would like to thank the Indonesia group Duo Kibos Perlukua for today's music. And the chief production assistants. Thank you for listening.